0: The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 16. The Carno of the North. Don't you know who we are? We arrived at the band call on Monday morning at the Middlesbrough Empire to find Sid in a terrible snit, rampaging round the stage, gesticulating angrily at the theatre manager, a hapless individual named Blazard, who was trying to placate him. I sidled up to George Craig, who was standing by the prompt desk, watching these shenanigans with a face like thunder. "'What's up, George?' I whispered. "'Here,' he hissed back, angrily thrusting a piece of paper into my hand, as though it would be explanation enough. It was the publicity poster for the week's run, and I spotted right away that Mummingbirds was right down at the bottom of the bill, down among the wine and spirits, in other words, taking second billing. It was quite a shock.' It must have been years since a carno company had been obliged to play second fiddle to anyone on any music hall stage anywhere. I glanced at the top of the bill and was mystified. If it had been a top-rank artiste, or some foreign turn with a global following and an ego to match, then maybe I might have understood. But it was actually another large company sketch, which would undoubtedly have its own substantial set and cumbersome cast cluttering up the place. The Arthur Jefferson Company, they were called, in something called Home from the Honeymoon. And this Jefferson was not shy of styling himself the Carno of the North. Sid broke away, exasperated from the theatre manager, who crumpled into a chair, gasping for breath, and stormed over to the assembled Carno troopers. "'If it were not bad enough to be billed second, we're expected to go on before the interval,' he fumed. "'I've complained till I'm blue in the face, but this fellow insists that the second half is promised to this other mob, and he won't shift an inch.' "'We're not going to stand for that, are we?' said Jimmy Russell, hands on hips. "'Well, what else can we do?' Sid exclaimed." There was a pause while heads were scratched, and then I suddenly burst out. "'Withdraw!' "'What?' said Sid. "'The Governor would have my guts for garters!' "'Pull out!' I insisted, and Tilly squeezed my arm encouragingly. "'Show we're not to be messed about. "'He'll back down, and if he doesn't, well, we'll set up somewhere else.' I was talking off the top of my head, but Jimmy Russell took over my half-baked idea. "'Yes,' he cried, "'there's a huge church hall just around the corner, "'that big dark red building. "'We're set up in there.' It could be done, Sid. You know it could. We'll wipe the floor with this mob. What do you say? There was a cheer from the rest of the company, apart from Sid, who looked as though the cares of the world had landed on his shoulders, and George, who was shaking his head, the big wet blanket. Come on, George, Jimmy said. How about it? Lights, George said discouragingly. Borrow em. Stage hands. bribe em. Audience, go out and grab them. George was still shaking his fat head, looking terrified, until he suddenly shouted... Let's have a vote. Who's for pulling out? Most hands shot up in the air straight away. Everyone's, in fact, apart from George's, Sid's and Charlie's. This isn't a democracy, you know, chaps, Sid said, frowning. It's all on me if it goes to hell. Which would you rather have to do, I said. Tell the Governor that we rolled over for that chump, or tell him that we wouldn't stand for it. Sid looked at Charlie, who shrugged. He looked at George, who mopped his brow with a big handkerchief. He looked at the rest of us, all raring to go. All of a sudden, he smacked his fist into the palm of his hand. "'Let's do it,' he said. "'What a day that was. "'We got the set loaded back onto the carts, "'with our faces set firm against Blazard, the theatre manager, "'who grabbed us by the sleeves, begging us to turn round. "'Jimmy Russell managed to secure the use of the big church hall "'that he'd seen for the week. "'It was promised to a temperance society for improving talks, "'but Jimmy managed to charm them round.' Bert Darnley was dispatched to a theatre in Darlington, which happened to be dark for that week, and returned with a cartload of lights and a small crew of eager stage workers. And once it was all set up, early afternoon time, we all dispersed to the four corners of the town to spread the word. Actually, it was surprisingly easy to start the ball rolling – Tilly and I worked it together, and I'm sure the other members of the company had a similar approach. We would go into a pub, and over a drink or two we'd get chatting to the customers and mention the exciting news that the Carnot Company had pulled out of the local theatre and were setting up a rival show in a church hall. It didn't take long for the word to pass around the pub, then we would move on. By the end of the afternoon we were no longer bothering with a drink or two first, we'd just poke our heads in through the doorway and shout the news, letting matters take their own course.' "'When the time came to return, we made our way past the Empire "'and saw the queue waiting to be let in for the evening's performance. "'Look at that,' Tilly said. "'He's not made any attempt to tell them that the Karno Company's not appearing tonight. "'That's taking their money under false pretenses, that is.' "'We should tell them,' I said. "'It's only fair.' "'We intended to whisper the information here and there as we passed along the line, "'but in the event we only had to tell the people at the front of the queue "'and the news travelled faster than we could walk.' It was like lighting the fuse on a firework, and as we watched, the queue disintegrated before our eyes, with the Empire's audience running, scurrying, hustling away round the corner to the church hall of St John the Evangelist. Hundreds were waiting there, the queue snaking away to the corner and away out of sight. George Craig was taking money hand over fist, and the big red hall was already crammed to the rafters. Tilly and I burst out laughing when we saw it, and we ran hand in hand to get ready. The show that evening had a rather curious beginning. Jimmy Russell had secured the use of the hall by promising to share it with the Temperance Society, but the audience sat dutifully through a harangue about the demon drink from the excitable Mrs Muriel Staveley, and then were rewarded by a carnot company at the top of its game. First some party pieces from the likes of Johnny Doyle and Bert Darnley and then the mighty Mummingbirds, which was rapturously received. Afterwards, we rubbed salt into the wounds by gathering to celebrate in the pub next door to the Empire, which we were pleased to discover had been less than half full. Sid was holding court, flush with success, at one end of a long table, with the other senior members of the company, Johnny Doyle, Jimmy Russell, George and Lily Craig, in attendance. To listen to him and Charlie, you'd think it had all been Sid's idea. They were debating whether to send a wire now to Carno about the whole affair, or whether to wait and see how the rest of the week played out. I sat at the other end with Bert, Chaz, and Tilly for company. On the opposite side of the room, we could see the Jefferson party similarly installed, like a mirror of ours, but mired in gloom. Their senior performers at one end, their junior fellows at the other, and then off by himself, a slim figure of maybe eighteen years old with springy red hair and a gormless smile stuck to his chops. No one seemed to be talking to him, and after a while, he picked up his glass of beer and wandered over in our direction. "'Hello,' this ginger stripling said, a big ingenuous grin on his face, "'as though he were incapable of imagining why anyone wouldn't like him. "'I'm Stan.' "'All right, Stan,' I said, choosing to play the benevolent victor. "'Join us!' "'This Stan plonked himself on the spare chair at our table "'and raised his glass as if to say cheers as we introduced ourselves. "'So, not celebrating with your mates tonight?' I asked, "'nodding over towards the Jefferson Company table. "'Stan had just brought his pint to his lips "'and snorted the froth off the top in surprise.' "'Celebrating?' he said. "'After that stunt you lot pulled.' Birch, Chaz, Tilly and I smirked and clinked our glasses together. Stan leaned in close. "'They're all crapping themselves that word's going to get back to the Governor "'and they'll all be out on the streets, so nobody wants to talk to me.' "'Why's that?' Tilly said. "'Well, you see, he's my dad,' Stan said. "'I'm Stan Jefferson.' "'So if your dad's the Carno of the North, "'then you're the Freddy Junior of the North,' I said. "'Stan grinned blankly at this. "'Difference is... "'Stan's old man's given him a go,' Bert said. "'Actually, Dad was dead against me going on the stage,' Stan said. "'He wanted me to go into the management side of things. "'Arthur Jefferson and son, you know. "'Then one night I borrowed some of his clothes "'and did a turn at a place called Picard's Museum. "'Do you know it? In Glasgow?' "'I did know it, of course. "'And an unpleasant memory of Walpink's smooth, well-fed features "'flashed before my eyes. I blinked it away.' So I walked out onto the stage in my borrowed trousers and my borrowed hat and I did my borrowed lines and it wasn't the greatest act in the world but it was the greatest feeling I ever had in my life. I saw Picard standing at the back watching me and there, standing next to him, was Dad. Crumbs, said Tilly. He saw that I was a lost cause, I suppose, and now he uses me as a sort of comedy-sticking plaster when something goes wrong with one of his shows. He glanced over his shoulder at the home from the honeymoon team, some of whom seemed to be giving him the evil eye and muttering darkly. Bert and Chas made their excuses and slipped away, probably to another pub where there were girls, if I know them. Stan turned to me with another big grin. "'What about you, then?' he said. "'How did you get started?' "'Well, you'll hardly believe this,' I said, "'but the fact is I borrowed my dad's clothes to do an act "'and he caught me at it.' "'No!' Stan Gufford. "'How about that?' "'And when you're eighteen, nineteen years old, "'that's all you really need to strike up a firm friendship "'with someone, isn't it? "'That you should have one thing in common.' "'Stan turned to Tilly.' "'And how about you, Mrs Dando?' "'Oh, like most people, really,' she replied nonchalantly. "'My family are in the business, so it was in my blood. "'My father has his own theatre, and my mother is a seamstress. "'She makes all the costumes for the shows.' "'This was news to me, and I was intrigued. "'So you first appeared at your father's theatre, then?' "'She laughed at that. "'I suppose I did,' she chuckled, "'and then she stuck her hand up and waggled her fingers at me. "'What's so funny?' I asked, "'but apparently it was a private joke between Tilly and herself.' Just then, Charlie strolled over, clutching his little glass of port and a cigarette, and stood over us, a disapproving expression on his face. You're giving away company secrets, Dando, is that it? To this spy from the opposition? Oh, come on, don't be so bloody po-faced, I said, slapping Charlie hard on the back. Anyway, I'm the one who's getting information. Did you know that Mr Jefferson gets his people to call him the governor? "Well, perhaps he shouldn't, after tonight's little embarrassment," Charlie snorted, and then he stuck his nose in the air and went back to the top table to consider weightier matters. Tilly, Stan, and me, we rolled about. If you could have seen Charlie's pompous little face with its pointless little sneer, and if you'd had a good night on stage followed by a few ales, then maybe you'd have been holding your aching sides too. The rest of that week was a triumph, a rout, a slaughter. The church hall was packed to wheezing Point night after night, and we had to do two extra shows on the Saturday. We cleared far more than we would have at the Empire, while Home from the Honeymoon at al limped along to cavernous empty houses. So much for the Carnot of the North, we thought. We all really took to young Stan, though. Even Charlie did, once our victory was certain and he loosened up a bit. And we spent a good deal of our spare time in his company. And so we were delighted, naturally, to find that the following week, while we were topping the bill at the first-rank West Hartlepool Palace... The Jefferson mob were not far away, in Hartlepool's somewhat lesser second theatre, The Crown, and we were able to continue meeting up for an after-show pint or three. Stan, Tilly and I even managed to organise a bit of an outing for ourselves, one sunny day when we had no daytime rehearsals, taking a picnic out to the headland. Sid had taken himself off to visit a friend from his days on the Cape mailboats whose ship was in the Victoria Dock for a spell, so when Charlie got wind of our day trip, he tagged along. We met up outside the hotel where the chaplains were spending the week, Tilly and I sharing a knowing look at the grandeur of the place compared to the modest lodgings we'd been billeted in. Charlie himself was in beaming, dapper form, dressed up to the nines. Sometimes he simply wouldn't make the effort and looked pretty much like a tramp, which I'm sure, reader, you will not be hard-pushed to imagine. He skipped down the steps as though he owned the place and greeted the three of us with exaggerated formality. "'Mrs. Dando,' Charlie gushed, bowing low to kiss Tilly's hand. "'I see you are looking particularly fetching today for our day out. "'This collar shows off your classical neck to particular advantage, "'and this tie, why, it's almost like a gentleman's tie, isn't it not? "'Not that it makes you look at all like a gentleman, I hasten to add. "'Anything but.' "'Tilly simpered. It's the only word for it. "'She was indeed wearing a man's thin tie that afternoon, "'one of my own, as a matter of fact.' It was something of a fashion for the young ladies at that time to wear a high, stiff gentleman's collar and a tie, making a none-too-subtle point about equality for women. Charlie knew this perfectly well, of course, and so when he offered Tillie his arm in a parody of a courtly gesture, he was gently mocking her. And when she took his arm, loving the fuss he was making of her, he was highly delighted and winked over his shoulder at Stan and me. The two of them set off chattering towards the sea, which glistened away on the horizon, leaving Stan and me to stroll along behind with the picnic basket. This had been prepared by our landlady, a nice widow named Mrs Budgen, who had been cooing over Tilly, seemingly convinced that she was going to need to build up her strength for a couple of decades of childbearing.' When we reached the headland, jutting out into the shining North Sea, we put the hamper down for a moment to fill our lungs with North Sea air and admire the view, the ships below, the docks down to one side and the beach curving away to the other. Ahead of us, Charlie trotted down a little slope onto the sands, then turned to catch Tilly as she skipped after him, pretending to be running out of control so that he had to grab her by the waist for a moment. He made some joke which we couldn't hear, smiling his toothy smile, and she threw her head back and laughed, leaving her weight against his arm. "'Stan looked at me with a wry half-frown. "'Charlie seems very familiar with your wife, doesn't he? "'Do you not mind?' "'As a matter of fact,' I found myself saying, "'she's not actually, which is to say we're not, strictly speaking.' "'What?' Stan grinned at me. "'Spit it out, man.' "'And so I told him about the misunderstanding with young Freddie Carnot, "'which had led to Tilly and myself sharing our accommodation as man and wife. "'He gawped at me, his mouth open wide, "'then broke out into great gusts of high-pitched laughter.' His eyebrows flew so high I thought they would disappear off the top of his head and tears poured down his cheeks. Charlie and Tilly came running back up the hill to see what the fuss was about. I was laughing myself now, laughing helplessly at Stan and Tilly too began to giggle at the pair of us. "'Whatever's so funny?' Charlie demanded, refusing to get drawn into the hysteria as ever, resenting any laugh that he himself had not generated. But I managed to signal somehow to Stan to keep his counsel. We found that the laughter had taken the wind out of our walking sails for the time being, so lunch was declared. We found an agreeable spot where you could perch on those sort of grassy tussocks that you often find where the beach meets the land, and tucked into Mrs Budgeon's picnic. I asked Stan how the week was going for the Jeffersons at the Crown. Oh, not all that well, I'm afraid, he said. Mr Spencer, the owner, he's talking about converting to a picture house. More fool him, I scoffed. "'All the staff are walking around like condemned men. "'He'll not need above half of them, you see, just to show pictures. "'It's about as cheerful as working in an undertaker's.' "'Madness,' I said, "'and I'm sure that most music-hall folk would have agreed with me then. "'For us, the bioscope was the part of the bill "'where the music-hall audience upped and went to relieve themselves.' "'Your father would never think of doing that, would he, Tilly?' "'I asked, turning his theatre into a (laughs) picture-house.' "'Not likely,' Tilly snorted, breaking into a giggle at the very idea. "'Not very likely at all.' "'Why must it only be real life that is captured on film?' Charlie mused. "'Why should it not be performances by the very same people "'you might go to the music hall to see?' "'So George Roby say, might come here one day "'and find himself appearing in the flesh at the palace "'and also on film at the Crown,' said Stan. "'How can that be better, though, than seeing the real thing?' Tilly mused. "'It can't, of course it can't, and people will realise that soon enough,' I said. "'I don't know,' said Charlie. "'Think about it this way. "'You could capture a perfect performance just the way you want it.' And then you never have to do it again. Never have to step out in front of a crowd wondering if they're going to be captivated by your art or baying for your blood. Suddenly Stan, Tilly and I all found ourselves choking on our sandwiches and all at the same word. Your art, I managed to scoff. Yes, my art. What's so funny about that? Well, nothing much that I've seen, I shot back and the others laughed along. It is an art, the art of comedy performance, he insisted. I'm like any artist, trying to capture the essence of the human condition. And you do, you do, every time you fall on your face or get hit by a bun, I chortled. And the frustrating thing, it seems to me, is that once one's performance is honed to perfection, then that perfection can never be preserved. It can only be repeated and deteriorate slowly but inexorably as the artist strives too hard to regain the perfection he once created. Stan and I shared a look, still amused by the pretentiousness of Charlie's styling himself an artist. Tilly, meanwhile, seemed carried away, rather, by the little fellow's eloquence, and was wearing an expression of intense interest as he directed his argument to her. "'If I were a painter, or a sculptor, or a writer, then my art would live on, would it not, in galleries, in museums, in libraries? Perhaps one day film will be able to do that for me, will become a new art form. What do you think, Mrs Dando?' "'I suppose that could be the way of it,' Tilly said.' Life was good that afternoon, strolling up the coast in the sunshine with my girl and my new friend, and even Charlie was on his best and most amusing behaviour. I made sure to pair up with Tilly when we set off back to town, though. She was becoming a little too admiring of young Mr Chaplin for my liking. Later, back at our lodgings after the show, I lay awake in the dark, wondering whether either of us had actually won that argument at the picnic. I said to Tilly, ''You know, I think Charlie would be happiest if they stuffed him and put him on display in the National Gallery.'' She giggled and drew herself closer to me under the blankets, and I soon stopped thinking about the art of comedy performance altogether. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Chapter 17 Tilly's Punctured Romance Towards the end of the week, George Craig loomed in the doorway of the dressing room. Just to let you know, the Governor's in Manchester next week and he's going to pop over to see us one night in Warrington. Surprise visit. So best behaviour, right, lads? How's that a surprise visit then, George? Chas Sewell sang out. You've told us about it now. I don't know. Maybe you'll have a pink hat on. George grumbled as he left. I looked over at Charlie and he was deep in thought. I knew what he was thinking, because I was thinking it too. Karno was coming to check on the two of us. During the show itself, Charlie was clearly distracted, mistiming a couple of bits of business which was most unlike him. It was a notable triumph for Bert Darnley, though, who was having a rare old hit that week declaiming the trail of the Yukon, and afterwards we were all making this the excuse for a celebration, while Charlie sat in a brown study nursing a single port. After a good long while he got up and had a quiet word with his brother, then he left the pub. At the end of the evening, Sid came over to our well oiled little group. Good night, lads, he said. Keep the noise down, won't you? Oh, and one more small thing. Tomorrow, Bert, your naughty boy, and Arthur, you're back to the magician. All right? Till tomorrow then. Toodloo And off he went. Well, we we're all a little worse for wear, and it took us a moment or two to process this turn of events. "'In fact, it was Tilly who first pointed out, "'That means that Charlie is doing the Yukon poem, doesn't it?' "'Bert was utterly crestfallen. "'Oh,' he said, and then after a moment or two, "'Oh.' "'As Tilly and I walked back to our digs later, a thought struck me. "'Maybe I should do the old magician quite badly for a night or two, "'keep Charlie's paws off it for when the governor comes. "'I don't know why you're both so sure he's coming to see you boys in any case,' "'Tilly said. "'He might be coming for something else altogether.' On the Saturday night, George stuck his head round the door again. Sid wants a word, he said. I'll see him in the pub, I replied. Now, George said emphatically, then went on his weary way. Bert Darnley grimaced at me and drew his thumb across his throat in an ominous fashion. I threw a pair of socks at him and headed along the corridor to Sid's room. Sid was there waiting for me, sitting facing the door like a judge in judgment, face like thunder. Dando, that was all he said at first. He just looked me up and down with an expression of disdain for what seemed like minutes on end until I could stand it no longer and broke the silence. "'I'll sit down, shall I?' I said. "'You do as you damn well please,' said Exploded. "'That seems to be your speciality.' Well, that wiped the smile off my face. "'Is it true?' he began. "'No.' Don't even answer that, because I know perfectly well it is true. You've been living as man and wife with one of the girl supers, staying in married lodgings arranged by our company manager, getting up to heaven only knows what, despite the fact that you are not and never have been married. What do you have to say for yourself? So that was it. I suppose deep down I knew it was too good to last. Actually, it's funny how it all came about, I said. It is not funny, Sid exclaimed. Nothing about this sorry business is funny. "'I don't know.' He began to massage his temples. First the Jefferson business, and now this. "'Do you have any idea of the responsibility involved in leading a carno company? "'Do you? "'I'm responsible for how this company behaves itself in the towns we visit, "'how the company appears, which is why I will not tolerate drunkenness, "'and I will not tolerate moral turpitude.' "'I must admit it was the first I'd heard about him not tolerating drunkenness. "'He'd have had to give himself a right ticking off more than once.' and I noticed that he'd managed to turn this round so that it was all about him. So you're giving me the sack, is that it? I ventured. I have no desire to see a promising career in ruins over this, yours or mine. However, I cannot allow the current state of affairs to continue. The girl must leave the company at once and return to London. You may go with her if you choose to, or you can continue with us for the next week in Warrington and the rest of the tour. Sid's eyes narrowed. If you leave us in the lurch, of course, you'll have to explain that to the governor, and I imagine he won't take too kindly to being let down. That was true. So there it was, as plainly as could be. My career or my girl. I was facing the worst dilemma of my life. Up to that point, anyway. Worse ones were to come, believe me. I left Sid's dressing room in a daze. George Craig was outside in the corridor, and as company manager he was clearly privy to what had just been discussed. "'He hissed at me. "'It's too late now to find either of you anywhere to stop the night, "'so you have one more night at Mrs Budgen's, "'but if I hear any of your high jinks, "'I'll be straight in there with a bucket of cold water. "'You mark my words.' "'Steady on, George,' I said. "'We've been pretending to be a married couple, "'not a pair of wild rabbits.' "'I picked up my bag from the dressing-room, already deserted. "'I looked into the ladies' dressing-room for Tilly, "'but that was empty too. "'I headed down the stone stairs towards the stage-door "'and met Charlie coming the other way.' As we passed each other on the landing, he smirked. Well, so long then, Arthur. It's been grand. Eh? I gather that you're leaving us, you and your... wife. What's that to you? I snapped back. Oh, nothing much, he trilled, but I shall watch your future career with interest. Ta-ta! Give my regards to the corner. Meaning, of course, unemployment, poverty, failure, despair. I listened to his footsteps tripping gaily up the stairs, and a new determination took a hold of me. Tilly wasn't in the pub, but Stan was, leaning on the bar. "'Hail, fellow, well met!' he cried out. Or should I say, old fellow? Ha-ha! What'll you have?' "'Nothing, thanks,' I said. "'I have to find Tilly. She'll have gone to our lodgings, I expect.' Stan's face fell. "'Oh, well then, I suppose this is goodbye.' I looked at him sharply. "'What do you mean by that?' "'Well, next week we're for Wall's End, and you're off to Warrington, and that's a devil of a hike for an after-show pint.' "'But I dare say our paths will cross again. "'Let's hope it's sooner rather than later, eh?' "'He smiled and shook me warmly by the hand. "'I found Tilly sitting on the bed in our room back at Mrs Budgeon's house. "'She gave me a rueful smile as I came in. "'You heard, then,' I said. "'Lily took me to one side. Very serious. "'She took my hand and pulled me gently over to sit beside her. "'How do you think they got wind of it?' "'I don't know. You didn't mention it to anyone?' "'Not a soul,' she insisted. "'What about you? Been bragging to any of the lads?' "'No, no.' "'I may have said something to Stan Jefferson, but he wouldn't have let on. "'He hasn't even met Sid or George, has he?' "'I don't suppose it really matters anyway, does it, love?' "'Tilly said. What's done is done. "'Nice while it lasted. All that.' "'Wasn't it, though?' I grinned, and we pulled each other close. "'Do you think—' "'No, silly,' she said. "'What?' "'Well, I was wondering, do you think they'd let us stay if we actually did?' Did what? Did. Get married. We looked at each other, and we both seemed to be holding our breath for an age. It felt like we were both waiting for a clue from the other. In the end, we could stand the tension no longer, and burst out laughing. We rolled back on the bed, making the spring squeak, and within moments there was an urgent rapping on the bedroom door. Oi! George hissed from the landing. Pack that business in, do you hear me? Naturally, this only added to our mirth, but we tried to keep the noise down as best we could. Once the first flush of hilarity had passed, the question of the marriage suggestion, or was it a proposal even, still hung over our heads. "'I think,' I started, but Tilly started to speak at the same time, so I stopped. "'No, you go on,' she said. "'Well, I think we'd struggle to get the bands read, and and a vicar out of bed, and my mother up from Cambridge, and the cake cut all in time to catch the train for Warrington tomorrow morning.' "'Yes, that's true,' Tilly said carefully, neither relieved nor disappointed.' "'So I suppose all we can really do is make the best of a bad lot.' "'Tilly laid her head on my chest, and I looked up at the ceiling. "'It's like a good old melodrama, isn't it?' she said. "'We shall be poor, but at least we shall be together.' "'Ha!' I snorted. "'It's not so very bad for me,' she went on. "'I'll get something soon enough, in the super way, or maybe dancing. "'Oh, but poor you. "'All the work you've put in to make your way at Carno's. "'And you're quite the coming chap, everyone says so. "'You and Charlie Chaplin, the next big Carno players.' There was a pause, a pause during which I'm pretty sure I was supposed to say, never mind, or it's not your fault, or possibly what I have discovered with you matters more to me than my silly old career. But I lay there thinking about Charlie's gleeful ta-ta, as his main rival flushed his big chance away, and I just couldn't give him the satisfaction. The thing is... What? What Sid Chaplin said to me was that they don't want this business of ours to be known about, because it reflects badly upon him and upon the governor. So, so what? So, in point of fact, I can finish the tour, this Mummingbirds tour, as long as... Tilly sat up. As long as I am sacked and sent back to London on my own, do you mean? I shrugged, nodded. That's... that's about the size of it, she finished for me. "'Her face flushed with the sheer drama of it all. "'Why, that's even more melodramatic, isn't it?' she cried. "'Choose between your career and your true love. "'Good heavens! The rotten so-and-so. "'And so you told him to take his tour and shove it in his pipe. "'I wish I could have seen his face.' "'I spread my palms apologetically, "'and a sudden frost descended upon the little bedroom. "'You did, didn't you, Arthur?' "'I said nothing. "'You didn't. "'You know, Carno's coming to Warrington next week, "'and he's coming to look at me and Charlie, "'maybe make one of us up to number one.' and I didn't say this, but I knew that if I did turn my back on Carno and left the way for Charlie, then I would regret that for the rest of my days, and who knows, maybe I'd blame her for it for the rest of both our days, and so really what I was doing was the best thing for both of us. "'I see,' Tilly said. "'Hm.' She stood and began to undo some fastening or other in her hair, preparing to go to bed. "'I don't think I'm ready to break with Carno,' I said. "'No, no, of course not. "'You must do what's right for you, of course.' In the morning, when I awoke from a fitful sleep, she had gone. I dressed and went down into Mrs Budgeon's parlour. The Craigs were already ensconced at the table, munching away at toast and jam, seething. George and Lily seemed to have taken the strange situation personally, as though our deception had been an affront not only to the state of matrimony itself, but to their marriage in particular. "'Have you seen Tilly this morning?' I asked." Lily pinned me with an icy glare. "'Your wife,' she said, "'solely for the benefit of Mrs Budgeon, "'who was hovering in the doorway with a teapot. "'She had to leave early for the station. "'Had you forgotten?' "'Oh, that's right,' I said, scratching my head. "'I haven't woken up properly yet. "'She had to catch a train to... "'To London,' Lily said, "'turning to explain to our benign landlady. "'Mrs Dando is taking a part in a new show "'and must start work on it at once.' "'What?' cried Mrs Budgeon, stricken they split up a lovely young couple and send them to work at opposite ends of the country? That's hard. That's... Why, that's inhuman. Well, I shrugged. It's a good chance for her, I suppose. Sit down, young fella. I'll bring you some bacon and eggs. That'll put a smile back on your poor face. Dear, oh dear, what a shame. And she bustled off into the kitchen. George sniffed. You'll be coming with us to Warrington then, I take it? I nodded. Very well. "'Just don't expect to carry on living in the style you've become accustomed to, that's all.' He was right about that. When Mrs Budgeon returned, she brought with her the last decent breakfast I had on that tour, but it could have been ash and potato peelings for all the mind I paid to it. I barely noticed George and Lily's disapproving gaze or Mrs Budgeon's sympathetic twitterings. All I could think was that I might just have made a terrible mistake.'